So to avoid any potential criticism that I never learned from my mistakes, this week we are going to begin there and back again with a brief sound check. I'm not going to launch into everything until I know for sure that you guys can hear me. Hi, welcome to There and Back Again. This is going to be session four tonight, and we have a lot of material to cover. I am really excited to talk about these chapters. They are a lot of fun and and function collectively, I think, or, or, or together at least, as the first major turning point in the book. This is the first of a number of points of transition that we're going to encounter as we move forward. I'm looking here at the YouTube chat. I can see myself there, and no one is shouting that I'm quiet. So hopefully you guys can all hear me. It's pretty much the bare minimum that we can ask for a live broadcast over the internet. Excellent. Everyone says they can hear me. We can get started. Welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. This week in the fourth part of our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we are going to cover chapters three and four of The Hobbit. We're going to cover a short rest, which is also conveniently a very short chapter, and we're going to cover Overhill and Underhill. We are going to meet some elves. We are going to meet some goblins. We are going to encounter some good luck. And we are going to encounter some luck that may appear at first to be bad. More on that later. As ever, you can ask questions and make comments here in the YouTube chat window. I can have you all here right beside me as I'm going through this, or on Twitter using the hashtag back again. Or if you support Storywonk over on patreon.com slash storywonk, you get exclusive access to our Discord server. I know that there have been some problems getting everyone signed into the Discord server. There are still some uh, some connectivity problems there. We are looking into that, and I know I promised a solution to that on Sunday when we did the last session of There and Back Again, and no solutions have as yet been forthcoming, but I am, I promise, working on the problem. But if you have access to the Discord server, you guys are right here. It's pretty good. Let's uh, take a look then at everyone who is here. We have a lot of people here with us tonight. I can't possibly go through everyone. I'm glad that you all managed to make it. This, as I said, is going to be a really interesting, hopefully, really interesting uh, discussion. And if you are listening after the fact, then you can do as so many listeners do. You can get in touch with me anytime in the course of the next week or month or year. You can email me directly, alistair at storywonk.com. That's A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R at storywonk.com. You can find me on Twitter. Just use the hashtag back again and I will see it. I'm kind of regretting just using that very simple hashtag because let me tell you, a lot of folks return to Twitter on a fairly regular and consistent basis, it turns out. Also, you can head on over to the Storywonk forum at forum.storywonk.com. And in the course of the last few weeks, I've had some confused messages from, I think, potential forum users, potential forum members, people who want to join the discussion who haven't been able to see the There and Back Again forum on the Storywonk forum. They haven't been able to see the board for these discussions because for some reason they were opaque to guests. That has been rectified. If you head on over to forum.storywonk.com right now, you should be able to read all the discussions up to date, even if you yourself are not yet a member of the Storywonk forum. But if you're not, why not? There are great discussions to be had over there. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad that you are uh, here with me. Yes, I, I'm so sorry about the uh, about the Discord problems. We're, we're working that. There's just some backend technicality, and unfortunately, it is doubly out of my hands because I have control neither over Patreon nor over Discord, but we're we're making it work. Um, Zachary says in the YouTube chat, first time I've made it in time for a live session and I had no idea Alistair looks so much like Joss Whedon. That is not something that I have heard before, Zachary, but you know what? I will take it. I will take it. Though I, of course, will not disappear from Twitter for years at a time. Welcome to the Hellmouth, says the Cat's Corner. <laughs> Jeff says that he can see the forum now too. That's a wonderful thing. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, and I have my little my little uh, 
emergency Giles quotation up here reminding me that there is always, you guys, there is always more scotch, though tonight's there and back again, brought to you by a little red wine. Let's get into a couple of outstanding points from last week's discussion. As ever, you guys are brilliant in the days after a session. Um, there are so many conversations that, that flow forth from these discussions. I love thinking of these live sessions as as primers, as, as a beginning for a longer and more developed conversation. And that has certainly been true this week. The wonderful Katie Bonner managed to encapsulate a question that I received in a number of different forms in the wake of, I keep saying last week, I guess Sunday's session. Technically last week, if you believe that the work week starts on a Monday, I'm not going to go down that digressive tangent of a path because we'll be here all night. Uh, but Katie managed to encapsulate a number of different emails that I received with a very simple question. She asked about the very commonplace, the, the, the mundane and prosaic names given to the trolls in chapter two. And this, I realize only in retrospect, is one of those minor details which may be self-evident only if you have a fairly robust sense of, of the class system in Britain, particularly that early 20th century class system. Tom, Bert, and William, or better yet, Bill, are common working class names. And that detail, coupled with their, their dialogue patterns, their slang, their use of colloquialism, their uncouth behavior, even the eating of mutton, and the drinking of beer all confirm that these trolls are intended to be read as working class cockney caricatures where we're doing broad pastiche here because this is intended to be somewhat comedic and therefore less frightening or intimidating than it might otherwise be by making the trolls appear common in the most derogatory sense of the word, I suppose, but by making the trolls appear working class, by making them appear appear lumpish and leaden, Tolkien is making them also appear comedic. And the relatively refined tastes of his readers, particularly, of course, his own children, who were the target audience for this book in the first instance, that depiction, that pastiche, that, that broad sto stroke approach to, to class commentary, if you like, um, that would have removed some of the threat and some of the, the malevolence from the trolls. So even as they're discussing the eating of dwarves, we get them in a, in a fairly kind of rough and tumble, fairly rough around the edges kind of way. They're, they aren't malevolent as much as they're cartoonish and clownish. That, I believe, is one of the reasons why we lean toward this, this somewhat satirical, I guess it's probably not sharp or acute enough to be considered satirical, but but this this fairly broad pastiche of working class characters. Um, I should say too, I had a couple of discussions this last week about the Nordic influence over Tolkien's perspective on trolls. I was discussing last time about the ways in which his, his version of trolls, these trolls in particular, seem to have sprung forth from a, a an Icelandic or a Nordic perspective on troll myth. If you are interested in that, then I absolutely recommend that you check out the 2010 Norwegian movie Troll Hunter. If you are into fantasy or quasi-fantasy, uh, horror, thriller stories with a found footage twist, as I am, then I can't recommend Troll Hunter enough. It's, it's a really beautiful piece of work. I think it's only like 90 minutes. It's a fast watch. It's absolutely engaging. The special effects are surprisingly uh, deft and, and, and well-purposed, I think. And the movie really has something to say about some themes which will be familiar to you if you have read Tolkien's work with any kind of depth and any kind of, of acuity. There are things said in Troll Hunter that that I think Tolkien would find at least recognizable, if not readily identifiable. 
yeah, so I recommend that very much. And thanks, of course, to everyone who got in touch, and particularly Katie, for, for prompting me to discuss the troll names. The other thing that I want to... Oh, and as Sam says here on uh, here in the YouTube chat, it is on Netflix. I wasn't sure. I didn't need to check before we started. I certainly watched it on Netflix. I'm glad that it's... Uh, I'm glad that it's still available. That's a wonderful thing. Um, I also wanted to address a question that was sent to me by Vega. And I love this. I have been thinking about this now for the last couple of days because I think this is a remarkably sophisticated and acute question. And I think that this, perhaps more than anything else we're going to discuss tonight, is going to prompt a great discussion over on the forum at forum.storywonk.com. Vega wrote this about Bilbo's luck. I think maybe luck could be a characteristic of every hobbit, kind of their magic. If you think about it, the Shire is an extremely peaceful place. Nothing wrong ever happens there apart from neighborhood disputes and that stuff. In Tolkien's works, all the hobbits appear all the hobbits appeared seem to me in fact very lucky, and whenever they suffer from unluckiness, it seems to me that it could be because of the interference of a major magic power, like the Ring or Gandalf getting Bilbo and Frodo out of their homes. Does that make any sense? I really like this. I really like this because it seems to me that in the broadest possible sense, good fortune may well be an innate hobbit trait. That is not to say that hobbits can't suffer horrible misfortunes. Certainly, as we move through the Lord of the Rings, we will see some hobbits in particular go through a very dark time indeed. But in general, the hobbits do seem to have a kind of charmed life. They do seem to have a kind of blessed existence. And what I want to do really is to open up a space for discussion regarding hobbits and their own innate virtue. Is it that hobbits are blessed or is it that there is something manifest in hobbit-like virtue that creates a world of peace and calm and tranquility and hospitality? We will learn in the opening pages of The Lord of the Rings that there has apparently never been a murder in the Shire. No hobbit has ever killed another hobbit. Now, we can speculate how, how accurate those reports may be. No hobbit certainly has ever been accused and found guilty of killing another hobbit, but the Shire does seem to be emblematic, almost iconic of a kind of bucolic peace and calm. It is literally pastoral. It is literally, almost explicitly, a vision of Tolkien's idealized world. So why do the hobbits inhabit that, where no other race seems to have quite that, that, that good fortune or quite that combination of virtues that leads to this kind of existence? And why does it persist? Why does it endure? I want to kind of frame that a little with some discussion of where hobbits come from. None of this comes from The Hobbit. A lot of this will come from The Lord of the Rings. Some of this will even come from the expanded material. But in the prologue to The Fellowship of the Ring, we learned this. Despite we this is talking about talking about hobbits, I should say. Despite we are separated now, the hobbits are close kin to us. Anyway, they are closer to us than elves and even from the dwarves. In the ancient days, they spoke in the human tongues with a special dialect and the same habits like us they have for good and bad. We learn that hobbits are closely related to menfolk, that it may be true that the hobbits were not an original race. They were not a, a fourth primary race, if you like, but rather they are simply a tribe of man, short man, men of short stature, but great heart, I guess we could say. We learned this too, that 
that in the early third age, uh, the hobbits came from the Vales of Anduin in the wild in the wilder land, excuse me, between Mirkwood and the Misty Mountains. We'll be able to discuss that in, in due course. But the hobbits themselves have lost the genealogical detail of how they are related to the rest of mankind. The hobbits themselves have, have records of their coming into the Shire and perhaps some broad legends about what happened prior to that, but no additional knowledge. So what is it then about the hobbits that make them special? Are they tranquil and gregarious and, and generally fairly communally minded because they are blessed with the sanctuary of the Shire? Or is the Shire the sanctuary that it is because hobbits are the way that they are? There is, throughout Tolkien's work, one major recurring theme that we can track and observe in instance after instance after instance, and it is simply the corruption of power. The great are inevitably corrupted. It is a question of when and not if the great will fall. But the small are not corrupted. Those of humble heart are not corrupted. They rise to fill the absence of those who have fallen. If you are exceptional, if you are a king, if you are a lord among men, then you may rule in, in wisdom and in justice and in beneficence for a while. But ultimately, power corrupts. That is one of the core ideas that underpins all of Tolkien's writing throughout his legendarium. But of course, the hobbits have no power. And more importantly, the hobbits have no desire for power. The hobbits would rather have second breakfast than a crown. We will see the intersection of the hobbit desire for power and the Hobbit manifestation of power, almost, as we move through the Lord of the Rings. But we will actually begin this discussion within the pages of this very book. We will have two opportunities in which we can discuss Bilbo's singular response to power as we move through the back half of this novel. And I want to, I want to track that very carefully, and certainly I would invite you all to head on over to the forum, forum.storywonk.com, and open up a discussion about what it is that makes Hobbits special. Are they simply lucky? Are they virtuous? Are they blessed? Those, I would say, are the... Those, when I say blessed, too, I don't mean blessed with luck or blessed with virtue. I mean, I mean raised in an environment that is, that is gentle and nurturing through no great virtue of their own. I find that fascinating. I genuinely do. Let's uh, take a look here at the YouTube chat and at everything. And this is all, oh, we're having a discussion here in Discord about uh, throwing these sessions up on a big screen. Yes, if you have a Chromecast, then streaming from YouTube is very, very easy. I have uh, two of them right now uh, because I watch a lot of YouTube for work and for pleasure. And being able to, to throw Chromecast images up on a TV is actually really convenient and pretty great. Um, I think my video quality isn't perhaps as high as it ought to be if I'm going to be on a significant screen. And I don't know that you should really put me on a significant screen anyway, but that's, you know, between you and your God, that's a fine thing to do. Um, let's see here. Oh, Kate asks on, on Twitter, is, is the more important part the lack of power or the lack of the ambition for power? It's the lack of the ambition. I mean, we will encounter in the Lord of the Rings at least a couple of singular figures. Um, no one wields this perhaps as fully as Faramir. Faramir, with the exception of Sam Gamgee, Faramir is perhaps 
the greatest man that we will meet in the pages of the Lord of the Rings. Greatest in the sense of, of his heroic virtue, his heroic aspect. I guess we can also make a, an argument for Aragorn too, of course. But, but Faramir is the one who has perhaps exceeded his lot in life by the greatest margin. Faramir is an extraordinary character. So we'll have lots of opportunity to talk about how power can be used and, and ought to be used as we move through the Lord of the Rings. But certainly, yes, ambition does seem to be the root of that corruptive influence. Though, even within the pages of this book, we're going to see that that the more you have, the more you want. This is true of power and influence and certainly true of gold. The dragon sickness seems to attach itself to wealth specifically, but we will also see instances of individuals engaging with power in a way that is very familiar to the manifestation of the dragon sickness. So certainly we'll track that. But yes, ambition is is a key part of that. A rush of love for Faramir here in the YouTube chat, which makes me happier than I can possibly tell you. Yes, yes. Dana says, I'm liking this pre-fall version of the Shire. No need for a ring. They had all they needed. Yes, absolutely. And, And in a sense... Again, <laughs> we need to stop looking ahead to the Lord of the Rings, or this really will take us uh, in excess of two years to get through everything that I want to get through. But in a sense, that is what the Lord of the Rings is about. Clearly, it takes place in a larger context. But like The Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings will be a Hobbit text. It is, it is written from the perspective of Hobbits. It is written very close to the ground, if you like. And, and in the actions of Sam Gamgee, and to a lesser extent, Frodo, Mary, Pippin, we will see the battle for the soul of the Shire. That's made explicit right at the end of The Return of the King as we as we come upon the scourging of the Shire. We really get to tangle directly with some of those ideas. But throughout the novel, what we're really doing is looking at hope and preservation and comfort. The Shire that we meet in The Hobbit is static, is fixed. It is elemental for Bilbo's experience. It is... It is out there in the world, and he can draw the thread, as he will in this week's reading, he can draw the thread from the hill to the mountain and back again. But in The Lord of the Rings, we're seeing a world that is imperiled. The intrusion of the Nazgul into the Shire is, well, suffice it to say, when we start talking about the Fellowship of the Ring, I will have a lot to say about the intrusion of the Nazgul into the Shire. Yes. Um, Sabrina says, what about wealth as power? Because the Hobbits do have class issues... I guess I would dispute that slightly. I guess what I would say is simply this. In this bucolic quasi-feudal system that Tolkien has established for the Shire, in this vision of English perfection that rolls forth from his creative impulse, we can observe that they do, in fact, have classes. But I would argue that they have class issues. We have to remember that in Tolkien's vision of class structure, your place was fixed. You were appointed by natural law, by natural purpose, by God explicitly, if you lean in that particular direction. This is why kings are forgiven for being oftentimes terrible people. They're kings. They're different. This guy is king just because he is better. We don't depose kings in in the works of Tolkien unless they have driven us to, to absolute exigency, if they have driven us to the very precipice of disaster, then we can take action to undercut that king. But kings are simply special. And that is true even as you move down through class structure. Dukes would be special. Counts would be special. Gentlemen, noblemen would be special. They are in their place because that is how things are supposed to be. So 
we can see that very closely. There's, there's a wonderful, um, now I forget where it is. Oh no, it's right at the end of the Silmarillion. Right at the end of the Silmarillion, we get this beautiful encapsulation of the entire story of the Lord of the Rings. It's very, very short. And I wish I had the text here in front of me so that I could read it to you, but it's a beautiful thing because it encapsulates the entirety of the Lord of the Rings in like two sentences. And what it says is that in this time of great turmoil, as, as this great threat stirred, a hobbit and his servant went to Mordor and uh, in spite of Sauron's influence and cast the ring into the fires of Mount Doom. That's it. It is a hobbit and his servant, which if you are a fan of Sam Gamgee, like I am a fan of Sam Gamgee, kind of makes you itch a little bit. But Sam would never have a problem with him with, with a description that identified him as, as Master Frodo's servant. Sam is humble. He understands his place as it is ordered. And we are led to believe, we are led to understand explicitly that that is a great virtue. That is a source of power for Sam Ganji. He is not great. He is small, but crucially, no less virtuous for that. So while... To modern eyes, and particularly to American eyes, the class structure of the Shire may seem to us to be unfair, unjust. That certainly, I think, isn't the intention. This is a different kind of social hierarchy than we perhaps are familiar with, a different kind of social hierarchy than we would perhaps advocate. But it is a social hierarchy that is grounded in justice and, and goodness and this feudal sense that you care for those below you. This is the, the purpose of feudalism. This is medieval idea of social hierarchy that, yes, by being great, you are granted power. But with that power, forgive me for a moment of, of Spider-Man philosophy here, with that power comes great responsibility. Yes, the king has basically unlimited power, but the king also has effectively unlimited responsibility for the dukes beneath his charge. Those dukes, in turn, have great power, but they are responsible for the counts and the lesser lords beneath them. Those counts and lesser lords have great power compared to the guy on the street, but they are responsible. These are truly hierarchical relationships that structure society in part, at least, to its best effect. We can argue the political philosophy of that, certainly. Yes. <laughs> yes, as Dana says, British class system, being a good servant is a thing to take pride in. Yes, there is no sense within the Shire or within this, this feudalistic system of social mobility. Tolkien, I think, well, perhaps later in his life, but, but certainly Tolkien, when he is formulating his vision of the Shire, when he is, is looking back on medieval cultures and drawing inspiration from them, would not have recognized social mobility as a thing. You are born into your class, born into your role, and you should be respected and loved and cared for and protected and, and nurtured, and, and your life should be a good and happy one. This is not about servitude in the sense that we are exploiting anyone, but you would never become greater than you are. That is a more modern idea, and of course, the core fundamental idea upon which this country has been founded, or, or one of the core ideas, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yes, Dry Heaving Lama says, I just can't bring myself to look favorably upon that kind of social philosophy. I cannot trust that those above will care about those below them. There is, I, I completely understand that, and, and you are by far in the majority here, but there is at the heart of that idea, at the heart of the very best feudal systems, there is the idea that the king is appointed by God and is therefore empowered by God to be great. The assumption 
that there can be no failing. The assumption that there can be no wrongdoing is kind of coded into the system in a way that we might find naive, that we might find self-serving, but in the idealized version of this system, it would work. Though, of course, idealized versions of political systems are not perhaps what we should be working toward. Yeah. Okay. Let's, <laughs> we could spend a long time talking about this. And, and unfortunately, Jacques has just brought, uh, Jacques, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Is, is that right? Are you Jacques? Because that's lovely. Jacques Boatman here in the YouTube chat says, like Denethor, I cannot start talking about Denethor right now, or we will be here all night. Once again, I have done a half hour before I have even started this week's slides. Hey, you guys, let's get into it. We begin this week with chapter three. We begin with the arrival of the elves, the first exposure of the elves. And before we even get to the first slide, I want to pull out a line that has, I think, tripped people up for quite some time. If you read The Hobbit casually, you might glide over this line without ever noticing it. But if you read The Hobbit carefully, you might be struck by a strange thing that Bilbo says as he looks down upon the valley. Bilbo says, hmm, it smells like elves, thought Bilbo, and he looked up at the stars. They were burning bright and blue. Just then there came a burst of song like laughter in the trees. And then we get the elves song. So here's the question. What do elves smell like? They apparently smell good. Bilbo seems to enjoy it, judging by the hmm. That's an H with four M's, I believe. Three M's, I guess, in, in the published Hobbit. Hmm, it smells like elves, thought Bilbo. And he looked up at the stars. So we get this idea that in the scent of elves, there is a kind of reverie. There is a kind of, of, of sinking into serenity, perhaps. There is nothing in the pages of The Hobbit that gives us any idea of what elves smell like. There is nothing in the pages of The Lord of the Rings that gives us an idea of what elves smell like. But there is, deep in Tolkien's legendarium, a possible suggestion. In The Lay of Lathian, which is the story of Beren and Luthien, which we may well be discussing before we're done. We'll certainly discuss it when we reach Weathertop in uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, because Aragorn tells a version of this story to the hobbits. But in The Lay of Lathian, the elven woman Luthien, who is marked out in Tolkien's work as the most beautiful child of Iluvatar. She is the most beautiful woman who has ever or will ever live. She is very special indeed. And she is accompanied, we are told, in The Lay of Lathian by a scent, quote, the odor of immortal flowers in everlasting spring. That, if I had to guess, would be the smell of elves. The odor of immortal flowers in everlasting spring. Though, I do realize, even as I say that, that that's not a terribly useful or, or applicable metaphor. It may be, in fact, the least useful and applicable metaphor that we are going to encounter in the works of Tolkien until we arrive at Tom Bombadil's door in The Fellowship, where we get a strikingly brilliant metaphor that accomplishes at the same time nothing and everything. We will talk about Goldberry when we get to her. Um, and then we can move into our first slide and the elf song. I realized that I asked Jacques how to pronounce her name and, and didn't, uh, didn't check it out. I don't know. Email me. <laughs> Trying to keep up with the chat, you guys. You are all, you are all loquacious, which I adore. Uh, and Victoria says here on Twitter, I imagine that elves smell something like little white flowers. Yes, I like that very much. Um, good. 
Yes, Robert Hickok, this is an excellent uh, observation here. Robert on Twitter says, definitely very important to remember Tolkien had a very high regard for the sovereignty of antiquity. Arda equals a series of monarchies. Yes, we can observe, well, not within the pages of The Hobbit, I guess, but if we look at the Silmarillion, we can extend that feudal system that I was discussing upward. We can keep drawing those tiers, keep keep elevating society upward and upward and upward until we arrive at Iluvatar himself, until we, we draw from Sam Gamgee, from the most humble of hobbits, all the way to Iluvatar. I think that's a great, a, a great observation, yes. And Aaron asks, does Sam end up a leader at the end of Lord of the Rings? Mayor, he absolutely does, but we must remember that Mayor is a civil position. He he does not at any point become a nobleman. He is elevated still within his class, but doesn't ever exceed that class. Though I guess there is going to be an interesting discussion about Merry and Pippin, who are more fundamentally changed by their experiences elsewhere. And the rules are never quite as simple for heroes either. Jackie, guys, thank you so much. Just keep saying Jackie until I look back. You guys, I appreciate it. That's going to make for a really interesting YouTube chat as I read that later. <laughs> well, now I wish I hadn't said it. I just wish I could could have maintained this all the way through. I wonder how many of you would have said Jackie before I saw it and stopped. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, Emmy says here, Immortal Flowers and Eternal Spring sounds really nice, but probably not as helpful for the reader as something more specific or real. Again, just wait until we get to Tom Bombadil. It'll be worth the wait. All right. So here we are, a half hour in. Let's start with our first slide, which is, of course, the Song of the elves. Oh, what are you doing? And where are you going? Your ponies need shoeing. The river is flowing. Oh, tra la down here in the valley. Oh, what are you seeking? And where are you making? The faggots are reeking. The bannocks are baking. Oh, tra la The valley is jolly. Ha ha. Oh, where are you going with beards all a wagging? No knowing, no knowing what brings Mr. Baggins and Balin and Dwalin down into the valley in June. Ha ha. Oh, will you be staying or will you be flying? Your ponies are straying, the daylight is dying. To fly would be folly, to stay would be jolly, and listened and hark to the end of the dark to our tune. Ha ha! This is... <laughs> this is a problematic poem, I know, for a lot of readers. Particularly if you are one of those readers who read The Lord of the Rings or, heaven help you, saw The Lord of the Rings movies first and then tried to read The Hobbit. Because these elves are silly. And the elves in The Lord of the Rings are many things, but silly is not one of them. And the elves in The Silmarillion are many things, but silly is not one of them. This is a very different perspective on elves. And what I want to do first is look at the content of the poem, and then I want to kind of frame the poem, because I have an idea that makes this work. So let's break down what is happening in each of these stanzas. And we can look to the way that the poem is taking on a life of its own, the way that each stanza broadens the impact of the previous stanza. The stanzas become longer, and they add more detail, they add more beat to the poem. Let's see how this works. Oh, where are you? Sorry, excuse me. Oh, what are you doing? And where are you going? Your ponies need shoeing. The river is flowing. Oh, tra la la here down in the valley. So we begin with two fairly standard, fairly obvious, fairly predictable questions. What are you doing? Where are you going? Your ponies need shoeing, though, and the river is flowing. One of these things is a fairly trite and mundane observation. The other is a completely inessential, almost tautological observation. Your ponies need shoeing. 
Huh, yeah, I guess they do. The river is flowing. What else would the river be doing? In part, to flow is to be a river and vice versa. Oh, tra-la-la-lali, here down in the valley. What is here down in the valley? What, what is happening here down in the valley? Is it just the river? Is it the river and the ponies? Is it the subject of the song? Is it the singers of the song? Is it tra-la-la-lali, whatever that is? Oh, what are you seeking and where are you making? The faggots are reeking, the bannocks are baking. Oh, trill-la-la-lali, the valley is jolly. Ha-ha. As you see, we, we lengthen this stanza as we move forward. Oh, what are you seeking and where are you making? This is making in the sense of, of making for. The, what is your destination? The faggots are reeking, the bannocks are baking. Hey, where are you going and what is it that you're looking for? And by the way, let me tell you, the campfire is blazing and we're making oat cakes. These two things are definitely connected, which is why I've put them in the same, the same stanza of my poem, excuse me. Oh, trill lilla lolly, the valley is jolly. Ha ha. Again, what is jolly about the valley? Is it the river, the ponies, the campfires, the oat cakes, the travelers, the singers of the song? Then as we move into the third stanza, we see that the elves may not be singing as, as simply or as trivially as we may have thought. Oh, where are you going with beards all a-wagging? No knowing, no knowing what brings Mr. Baggins and Balin and Dwalin down into the valley in June. Ha ha. So the elves know exactly who these people are. Not just Bilbo Baggins, who might stand out by virtue of the fact that he is a hobbit, but Balin and Dwalin too. So now we're beginning to get the sense that perhaps this song is somewhat less than sincere. No knowing, no knowing what brings Mr. Baggins and Balin and Dwalin down into the valley in June. On the very next page, the elves are going to tease the dwarves and Bilbo as they go forward toward Rivendell. And one of the things that they are going to call out is this. Mind Bilbo doesn't eat all the cakes, they called. He's too fat to get through keyholes yet. The reference to keyholes, of course, confirms our suspicion that the elves know exactly what is going on. They know not only that these dwarves are heading to the Lonely Mountain, but they know about the secret door. And we might speculate trivially how they found this information out. I don't think it's, it's a mystery. How do they know that this is the case? Gandalf has alerted his friends. He sent friends on ahead to Rivendell, we are told, that we don't know who those friends are or what was happening exactly. So Gandalf has alerted the elves, but the elves are being indirect in their song. They aren't coming forth and, and asking actual questions. They're coming forth and asking a kind of rhetorical question. And once again, we have to wonder how much of this song was prepared? How much of this is a standard song for the elves, and how much of it was customized for this party in particular? And then we have the final stanza. Oh, will you be staying, or will you be flying? Your ponies are straying, the daylight is dying, to fly would be folly, to stay would be jolly, and listen and hark to the end of the dark, to our tune. Ha ha. Well, here, we transition into questions that the elves don't actually know the answer to. In the first three stanzas, they know the answer to those questions. They know where they're going. They know what they're doing. They know what they're seeking. They know what they're making. They know again where they're going with their beards all a-wagging. But here, 
They're asking questions that they don't know the answers to. Your ponies are straying. The daylight is dying. To fly, to, to leave, to move on would be folly. To stay would be jolly. And listen and hark till the end of the dark to our tune, ha-ha. We know at this point from the surrounding text that this is early evening. We're just getting into the night now. So the elves are suggesting that Bilbo and the dwarves spend all night with them here simply singing. Which is kind of a lovely idea. It seems to me that in their observations, what the elves are doing is not teasing the dwarves, and they're not simply being, being, they're not simply taunting the dwarves. They're not being disingenuous in their questions. You know, the ponies need chewing, the river is flowing, the faggots are reeking, the bannocks are baking. None of that is incidental in the sense that it is somehow peripheral to their core experience, but it's not relevant to the dwarves. What we're seeing here in the Elf Song, I think, is a recognition of the world around them. That where you are going is important, yes, but it is not more important than where you are. Your pony needs shoeing, yes, that is a thing that is true, but it is no more important than the river is flowing. The river flowing, of course, being effectively completely incidental. What else ought the river to do? The oat cakes are baking. You are on a quest. These things are connected in that both are happening, both are present, both are in the now. But the elves seem unwilling to draw a distinction between what will be and what is. All of these things are almost as true in the moment as they can be. Thus, when we arrive at the last stanza and we actually turn the corner into asking questions to which we do not know the answers, will you stay or will you go? Will you stay and listen to our song until morning? We don't know that yet, but the song is in the here and now, which is one of the reasons I believe that to fly would be folly. Now, there is one possible explanation that accounts for this poem, which I, I rather like, and it came to me only today as I, was, as I was thinking about this poem, because I think it works rather beautifully, simply as, a, as a, an ode to elvish experience, that the elves are connected to the world around them. They are present in this time and in this place, and they are celebratory of that fact. They know that this is a major quest that is being undertaken, but that isn't enough to distract them from the fact that the river is flowing, and nor should it be, and nor should it distract you from the fact that the river is flowing. That this profound connection to their time and space, and in the harmony of their song, of course, to each other, to their community, that this is a, a worthy and wonderful thing in and of itself. But there is a way of looking at this song, I think, that makes that theme and that tone work still, but complements it with a better understanding of the actual text of the poem, because as much as we might love this, this, this philosophy from the elves, we maybe don't love our race of, of immortal elven spirits singing tra la la lolly. That maybe robs them of a certain gravitas. That maybe steals away some sense of that, that beautifully observed intermingling of joy and grief that the elven people experience. The elves are, are connected to this world, but we must never forget that in, in Tolkien's cosmology, in Tolkien's theology, the elves are not of this world. The elves are hmm, almost supernatural to a sense. Everything else in the world lives and dies and elves don't, and that is their curse. But one possible idea 
as I was looking at this today, comes from Tolkien's preoccupation, of course, with language. By the time that he was writing The Hobbit, he had been working on his elven languages for, for years, for, for decades at this point. And the elvish languages are melodic and they are mellifluous and they are full of long and complex words with beautifully rhythmic alternations of consonant and vowel sounds. Like tra la la lolly, for example. Is it possible that tra la la lolly is in some way poetically representative of phrases in Sindarin, in, in the Elvish language that these elves were most likely speaking. Are these Elvish phrases in Sindarin rendered into onomatopoeic sounds, or, you know, nonsense sounds by Bilbo? These may be sounds that he heard during the song. These may be sounds that he heard words that he heard during his stay at Rivendell that he adapted himself into poetry, which speaks to that same sense, speaks to that same theme, but does not perhaps accurately reflect the tone and the, the gravitas of elven poetry. It's possible that this poem is not an elven poem, I guess is what I'm saying, which makes a lot of sense in the specifics, even if the tone is thereby preserved. What do you guys think of that? Robert says elves don't lose gravitas by dipping into the silly. They are able to participate in many things, including the simple joy of fun and silliness. Hmm. Hmm. Certainly they are able to participate in joy. Certainly, I would say, to participate in silliness. Yes. Um, hmm. I guess when we think of Elvish song, particularly as we move into the Lord of the Rings, we tend to see more artistry there, I guess. It is perhaps not the silliness to which we might object when it comes to this particular song, but it is the the nonsense word aspect of it. Um one might expect the finest elven singers to come up with something a, a touch more sophisticated than tra la lolly perhaps. But I'm glad that it works for you. I, I know that this throws a lot of people out when we get here, particularly if you're coming from, uh, coming from the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. By the time this comes from, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it just moved. Who does this come from? Uh, Marcelo, uh, Marcelo, Marcelo, I'm not sure. By the time Bilbo was writing there and back again, he should have known the Elvish language enough to do a better job of transliteration. That's certainly true. He could have written perhaps a better version of this poem, but I wonder how much of this stuck with him as he was moving forward through his experience. How much is Tralalalali significant to Bilbo as a representative? This is, this is all rampant speculation, certainly. Yes. Good. Good. Um... Yes, um, Lorna says, I took the river as flowing to mean that it's flowing a lot faster than usual. Interesting. And, and Kate is pointing out that we will learn ultimately that elves can control this river. Um, Arwen in the movies. Yes, yes. Good. But certainly, yes, we don't know that yet. And there is no sense at all within The Lord of, uh, within the Hobbit, excuse me, that that is, is true. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff says, but this is not a song from elves to elves. This is a song meant to invite yet obscure. It's meant for dwarves who won't appreciate high elf song. That is a very interesting approach too. Yes. Um, the idea that dwarves of all beings should be rooted in the present, that, that, we should all, that we ought to try to anchor dwarves in the here and the now because dwarves, well, possibly they are rivaled by men in this regard, but dwarves, as we know, tend to move forward and dig deeper and acquire more. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay, let's, um, let's in fact pick up directly after the end of the song because now we have to meet the elves themselves. 
Um, so they laughed and sang in the trees, and pretty fair nonsense, I dare say you think it. Not that they would care. They would only laugh all the more if you told them so. They were elves, of course. Soon Bilbo caught glimpses of them in the dar- as the darkness deepened. He loved elves, though he seldom met them, but he was a little frightened of them, too. Dwarves don't get on well with them. Even decent enough dwarves like Thorin and his friends think them foolish, which is a very foolish thing to think, or get annoyed with them. For some elves tease them and laugh at them, and most of all, at their beards. The immediate introduction of elves is, I think, valuable. It doesn't necessarily deepen our understanding of elves, but it does communicate a couple of very important things. We know now that Bilbo loves elves, that ha- but has little exposure to them, and, and also that he is somewhat conflicted in his love of elves. We know, too, that dwarves don't get on with them. We know that elves will tease dwarvish beards. But what's most interesting, I think, about that, the back half of this paragraph, dwarves don't get on well with them. Even decent enough dwarves like Thorin and his friends think them foolish, which is a very foolish thing to think. Do you note what's happening there? Do you see what's unusual about those lines? They're in the present tense. Tolkien now isn't talking about the actual elves that Bilbo encounters or the actual dwarves who were accompanying him. Rather, he's talking about the elves and the dwarves that still live in the world. Or we can say either Tolkien, the author, is doing this, or the narrative voice that binds this novel together is doing this, or Bilbo, the original author, is doing this. But someone at some point is talking about the present tense elves and dwarves. And I'm inclined to believe, though this would make a great deal of sense for Bilbo as author, I'm inclined to believe that, hmm, Yeah, I'm inclined to believe that this does come from Tolkien. Remember right at the beginning of the book, we were talking about the ways in which hobbits had retreated from the world. They had begun to hide from man and were very difficult to find nowadays. This seems to me an echo in that spirit, that we are being told in pretty fair terms that there are still elves in the world, there are still dwarves in the world. We just don't see them, that we have left them behind rather than the opposite. Let's push on to the next slide here. Um, As I check Twitter to make sure that I'm keeping up. (laughs) Robert says, I think Tolkien was intentional or not developing his cosmology in The Hobbit. certainly looks, though, through the revisions. That's very true. And, of course, by this point, he had been working on his legendarium. He would be working on this, what would ultimately become an extended network of stories He had been working on these for for 20 years at this point. Um, He'd been developing his languages. He'd been developing his histories. He had been creating a a plethora of stories, which he would ultimately draw together and unify into the, the entire legendarium. So, yes, we can never assume that anything in Tolkien is unintentional. And oftentimes he will recycle important elements from his earlier stories or from fragments of backstory that he has created and fold them into his current narrative. That happens again and again and again and again through the pages of The Hobbit and ultimately The Lord of the Rings too. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, take a look at this next, uh, the advice that we get from, from our friendly elf here. You are a little out of your way, said the elf. That is, if you are making for the only path across the water into the house beyond. We will set you right, but you had best get on foot until you are over the bridge. 
Are you going to stay a bit and sing with us, or will you go straight on? Supper is preparing over there, he said. I can smell the wood fires for the cooking. Tired as he was, Bilbo would have liked to stay a while. Elvish singing is not a thing to miss in June under the stars, not if you care for such things. Also, he would have liked to have a few private words with these people that seemed to know his names and all about him, though he had never seen them before. He thought their opinion of his adventure might be interesting. Elves knew a lot, and are wondrous folk for news, and know what is going on among the peoples of the land as quick as water flows, or quicker. But the dwarves were all for supper as soon as possible just then, and would not stay. Bilbo is offered, at last, comfort and rest, and food, and security, and he hesitates. He would like to listen to the elf song rather than be comforted. What do we make of that? The wonderful Sue uh, sent me an email this week. I know that she's not here with us tonight, but she uh, sent me an email this week that I thought was fascinating. She wrote, Bilbo seems truly at home at Rivendell, not even missing his comfy hobbit hole with the Catalan. Rivendell has comfort and safety to soothe his baggins tendencies, mixed with strange and beautiful delights to feed his tookish nature. Seems Rivendell is where he can be his truest self. No wonder that he will return, but that's a story for another day. This, I think, is exactly right. I think that the combination of qualities that we see in the elves, that we see in Rivendell in particular, could not be better for Bilbo. He has all of that comfort, all of that security, but also poetry, magic, song, wonder, adventure. Here, both the Baggins and the Took, in equal measure, can be sated, can be fulfilled, and can be integrated. We discussed the importance of that back when we were looking at the Baggins and Took side of Bilbo's character in the first two chapters. This suggests that Bilbo can find a balance point for his personality, that he can integrate those two sides of his nature and do so effectively and can do so, perhaps most importantly, in the, the comfort and the companionship of elves. Yes, Kate says, Bilbo's mom was a Took. Maybe she sang elf songs at the cradle. Lullabies hold lifelong power. We are told, of course, that one of the reasons the Tooks are strange is that rumor tells us one of them took a fairy wife. Now, of course, the narrator assures us that that isn't true. But if it's the kind of thing that might seem true, we might wonder about Tookish tendency. We might wonder about the connections between the Tooks, even the famous Belladonna took, and the elves who, who surround and occasionally travel through the Shire. This is enormously powerful. And it also tells us that the dwarves and Bilbo do differ in some very important regards. Now, remember, we've established a certain commonality between the dwarves and Bilbo at this point. As we've come through adversity, as we faced the trolls, as we finally made it to Rivendell, we've seen them eat and drink and grumble and complain, we've seen them be not entirely unlike Bilbo. Not Thorin, he's special, he's a king, but the other dwarves seem to be fairly Baggins-ish, though still Tookish too in their way. But here we see that perhaps there is a difference. Here we see that the dwarves are not open or receptive to Alvin. Magic, I guess, is the word, but it's magic with a lowercase m, the lowest possible case m. We're not talking about actual spellcraft here. We're talking about the enchantment of song and perspective. 
Bilbo can see the wonder. Bilbo sees the wonder the minute that he smells the elves, remember? He smells the elves and he looks up to the stars. And we see him looking to the stars in just the same way as he looked to the stars when the dwarves were singing their song back in his friendly hole back back end. Bilbo has an ability to empathize and to connect and to be caught up in song in a way that apparently the dwarves don't, or at least not in the songs of others. I'm sure the dwarves are caught up just fine in their own songs. Oh, also, um, I should say, <laughs> before we get into the next slide, um, I should say that I've had uh, a handful of emails. Um, I've had like a dozen emails, you guys. Uh, asking about the characterization of the uh, dwarves and whether I can take a page from the characterization of Gimli in The Lord of the Rings that has itself basically redefined how we portray and depict dwarves in popular culture right now. So all I will say is this, as we move into the next slide here in which we discuss the good fortune of the swords, from now on, all the dwarves will be Scottish. Here we go. Elrond knew all about runes of every kind. That day, he looked at the swords they had brought from the troll's lair and said, These are not troll make. They are old swords, very old swords of the high elves of the west, my kin. They were made in Gondolin for the goblin wars. They must have come from a dragon's horde or goblin plunder, for dragons and goblins destroyed that city many ages ago. This, Thorin, the runes name Orcrist, the goblin cleaver in the ancient tongue of Gondolin, it was a famous blade. This, Gandalf was Glamdring, foe hammer that the king of Gondolin once wore. Keep them well. Whence did the trolls get them, I wonder, said Thorin, looking at his sword with new interest. I could not say, said Elrond, but one may guess that your trolls had plundered other plunderers or come on the remnants of old robberies in some hold in the mountains. I have heard that there are still forgotten treasures of old to be found in the deserted caverns of the mines of Moria since the dwarf and goblin war. I see a couple people here in the YouTube chat very excited about the reference to Gondolin. That is a good thing. I'm very glad to see that. I too am thrilled by this. This is one of the deepest explorations of Tolkien's Legendarium that we will get in the pages of The Hobbit. These references are pointed and specific and acute in a way that few other references will be. I want first, though, before we get into the, the meat of this particular slide, I want first to look at that last paragraph, what Elrond says. One may guess that your trolls had plundered other plunderers or come on the remnants of old robberies in some hold in the mountains. Well, at some point, these swords were stolen. At some point, they were taken. They were looted. They were plundered. And then they were plundered again and looted again and stolen again. And then by a chain of, of deception and theft and, and petty crime, they came into the possession of the trolls that you turned to stone. But look how Elrond concludes that thought. I have heard that there still are forgotten treasures of old to be found in the deserted caverns in the mines of Moria since the dwarf and goblin war. I have heard that there are still forgotten treasures of old. His implication seems to be that these forgotten treasures of old, plundered and replundered again and again, taken and retaken again and again, have somehow wound up in the mines of Moria, which is a dwarven kingdom. Is this a snide insult against Thorin and his people? It doesn't seem to be 
the kind of insult that Elrond would deliver. And it's possible that he's giving himself an out here by also crediting the goblins. Sure, oh no, the goblins may have taken them and just left them down there, those petty thieves. But it's also possible that he is looking disparagingly, I think, upon dwarven culture itself. That, though, is less important than what really stands out about this scene. The impossible good fortune of the discovery of these swords, which will, by the way, be all the more clear within the rest of this week's reading. This impossible good fortune, which we discussed a little last week, may seem to be dismissed by Elrond with something of a shrug. Huh. Look what you found. You found these ancient elvish blades. These date back to the fall of Gondolin many centuries ago. Huh, that's interesting and curious that you should have found these. Well, anyway, what I find most interesting about this is what Elrond doesn't do and what we might infer from the absence of his action. Because these are ancient elven blades. They were used in the fall of the great elvish city of Gondolin. They were possibly wielded, we are told, by King Turgon himself, who was Elrond's great-grandfather. So Elrond doesn't just have a, a cultural connection to these blades. He has potentially, at least, a familial connection to these blades. But despite having this wizard and this dwarf show up on his doorstep with these impossibly valuable artifacts of, of elven culture and civilization, thought lost for centuries and now recovered. And despite the fact that when they show up, they admit right out, hey, we just found these weird things. Isn't that cool? Elrond doesn't take them. He doesn't seize them. He doesn't ask for them. He doesn't presume any kind of ownership over them. And far more than that, he doesn't assume that Gandalf, a man for, or a wizard, I should say, for whom he has presumably nothing but the greatest respect, he doesn't presume that they are in the sole possession of Gandalf. Now, Thorin picked this one up, so this one is Thorin's now. That seems to be the implication. And I wonder what Elrond is making of this chain of increasingly unlikely good fortune. To find the trolls is one thing. To find the troll's secret stash is another. To have the key fall out of William's pocket just in time for Bilbo to seize it before it is turned to stone is something quite else, something quite other. And then to open up this secret stash and to find ancient crafted elvish blades, this seems to, to beggar belief. This seems to, to exceed any kind of account of good fortune that we could reasonably make. So I wonder if... In this passage, Elrond is seeing something deeper. Yes, it is impossible. My dudes, are you kidding me? It is beyond the realm of possibility that you could have found these swords. Unless you were meant to. Unless this is by design or by fate or by purpose. Unless this is some part of Iluvatar's will that you wield these blades now. And if that's the case, as it must be, because are you kidding me? If that's the case, then they're yours. They're intended for you, and I have no right to them. I have no claim to them. That, I think, is at least one possible interpretation of Elrond's lack of action at this point. I am certain, and this is the, the balance that I can offer, as we will move into a discussion of the Arkenstone right at the end of this book, we may think back on, on Elrond's possible generosity here. But I am certain that if this situation were flipped, if, if 
Elrond had shown up in the halls of the Dwarven King, if he had wandered into Erebor when Erebor was at its height, and he had presented to Thor's grandfather an axe of intricate Dwarven make that had been lost for centuries, that was a symbol of, of a great and pivotal moment in the history of Dwarven culture, I am fairly certain that Elrond would not have been permitted to keep that axe. But here we see that these swords are perhaps where they are meant to be. And again, that chain of, of borderline impossible circumstance is not accidental. This is not Tolkien trying to keep plates spinning in order to maintain some level of excitement. We can tell that for sure, by the way, because he repeatedly draws attention to how unlikely these things are. He's not trying to get away with something in the hope that the reader isn't noticing, because he is highlighting these things so that the reader pays attention to them. And we're about to get to perhaps the biggest, uh, the biggest example of that. Yes. Um, let me see here. There is too much for me to scroll back through, you guys. There is just too much. Um, yes, we're, we're talking about luck. We're talking about providence. We're talking about impossible odds. Yes. As Jordan says, and on that matter, what are the odds that those blades would still be there or even in the vicinity? There you go. There's another, another implausible uh, circumstance to, to roll up with all of the others. Not only were these swords recovered from Gondolin, not only were they passed hand-to-hand into the possession of trolls, which seems wildly unlikely, not only were the circumstances of their recovery as unlikely as we have discussed, but also they were found, what, two days' ride, three days' ride from Rivendell? Yeah, wildly unlikely. Yes, good. Finders keepers, Jackie says. And he has no use for them. And in exactly the same breath, Chesley says, why is Elrond giving away such important heirlooms? Yes. I think you can certainly recognize it as, as finders keepers. I think there may be something to that, that there may be here an element of, of elvish culture that we are not introduced to. But certainly the presumption of ownership seems to be complete. It seems to be something that, that goes unquestioned, which makes me wonder whether or not Elrond is seeing a greater purpose here, a greater intent behind the good fortune of the dwarves. Yeah. Um, good. <laughs> Dry Heaving Lama says, it seems like the DM of this campaign is determined to railroad the story. Also fair. Also fair. Good. Okay. Let's take a look then. Now that we have talked a little about destiny and we've talked a little about fate and we've talked a little about, about preordination, let's talk about the most conspicuous example that we have seen to date. Let's talk about the most implausible circumstance that we have seen to date. Let's talk about moon runes, you guys. Moon letters are rune letters, but you cannot see them, said Elrond. Not when you look straight at them. They can only be seen when the moon shines behind them. And what is more, with the more cunning sort, it must be a moon of the same shape and season as the day when they were written. The dwarves invented them and wrote them with silver pens, as your friends could tell you. These must have been written on a midsummer's eve in a crescent moon a long while ago. What do they say? asked Gandalf and Thorin together, a bit vexed, perhaps, that even Elrond should have found this out first, though really there had not been a chance before, and there would not have been another until goodness knows when. Stand by the grey stone when the thrush knocks, read Elrond, and the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. Just in case we haven't had enough good fortune with the swords, just in case the implausible set of circumstances that have led us to this point have been in some sense insufficient. Let's consider the moon letters. 
They are only visible under a crescent moon on midsummer day. If we are generous in our calculations and we assume that the moon may be considered a crescent for eight days each month and assume, again, generously that any crescent moon is enough to trigger the runes, that means that these moon runes would be visible for one night every four years, more or less. If the definition of crescent is more specific, if the definition of crescent is as specific as Elrond seems to suggest that it is, then these moon runes might be, might be visible as infrequently as one day every 30 years or so. One day in 30 years. And it just happens to be the day when our heroes arrive at Rivendell. It just happens to be the day when they take the map out of their pack and show it to Elrond. It just happens to be the case that they are standing with Elrond while the moon is in the sky. Again, implausibility after implausibility after implausibility, except, except. Stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks, read Elrond, and the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. This is as close to prophecy as anything that we have seen thus far. Because you have to track very carefully, I think, the voice in which these instructions are written, because only the beginning is an instruction. Stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks, read Elrond. Well, the only part of that that is instruction is stand by the gray stone. We don't know what it means for the thrush to knock, and we cannot control when the thrush knocks. The thrush will knock or not as the thrush will. We will stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks, and the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. Who can say for sure when that last ray of setting sun will be? Who can say for sure that there won't be some atmospheric effect, some lensing effect out on the horizon that will change everything? Who can say that it won't be raining that day? Who can say that this will be as has been foretold? Well, We'll see toward the end of the book exactly how this plays out, but that reads to me profoundly, I think, as prophecy. And if we're dealing with prophecy, if we're dealing with fate and with predestination, then that changes to a certain extent our understanding of the incredible good fortune that we have witnessed thus far. And I want to draw a distinction here between, between good fortune or fate on the one hand and eucatastrophe on the other, because eucatastrophe has to involve that calamitous collapse. Everything has to fall apart. A eucatastrophe can only strike in that instance at which all seems lost. Though I guess, as we discussed last week to a certain degree, there is a gentler kind of pre-eucatastrophe that can be inferred here from these experiences. That perhaps in order to have the eucatastrophe deliver you from danger right when you need it most, for example, when Gandalf shows up and kills the Great Goblin, Maybe what we need is for some preparatory work to take place. Maybe what we need is to lay a foundation for that moment of eucatastrophe. Either way, this reads to me as prophecy. It reads to me as, as a foretelling of what will be. That seems completely intentional, aside from the inordinate good fortune. How do you guys feel about that? Does something stand out to you about that? Kim says, but seriously, how many moon runes did this guy see? Elrond is amazing, but dude, with that kind of, with that kind of timing is required to see any moon runes ever? Yeah, maybe. Well, he certainly says that, that um, particularly cunning ones, it must be the same moon. Uh, it must be the, the moon of the same shape and season as when the message was written. Presumably, that means that with other moon runes, they're always visible just under the moon. That You can do that any day of the year. 
But still, I mean, how rare must they be? How unusual must they be? Particularly because they are of dwarven craft, as is made clear in this passage. Yeah. Yes. There's some questions here about divine intervention, some questions here about divine guidance, certainly. Yes, yes. Dry heaving llama says, I brought my calculator trying to calculate the implausibility of all of this happening. Yes. This is what I mean, though, when I say that Tolkien absolutely lampshades the impossibility of it. There is no need for these moon runes to only be visible one day out of every 30 years or however the math pans out. He does that to emphasize the impossibility of this event, the impossibility of this circumstance. This isn't a thing that could just happen. It's bad enough that they found these swords. It's bad enough that this entire adventure began in the first place. But now here we are, apparently predestined to be here. It is Midsummer's Day, and that is the only day in which these moon runes could be read. If they had been delayed, and this is perhaps an interesting point to note, too. We've just been told how hard the journey from the Shire to Rivendell was for these dwarves. They fought through misadventure and adversity. They ran afoul of the trolls. They were slowed down. They were impeded every step of the way. Feely and Keely nearly drowned. We lost a bunch of food. Not to suggest that those two things are equally bad, but let's face it, they're pretty much equally bad. And now we finally arrived at Rivendell. Had the circumstances of the journey been better, the outcome would almost certainly have been worse. Had they arrived at Rivendell on time, they would have shown Elrond the map, and he would have said, cool map, good luck, because there would have been nothing to see in the moon runes. Even disadvantage has been turned to advantage. Even misfortune has been turned to fortune. That is perhaps the deeper layer at which Bilbo's luck seems to operate, and we'll continue to study that as we move forward, too. Good. Oh, an interesting point here in the YouTube chat. Uh, it Don't Connect says, The Hobbit is about finding while the Lord of the Rings is centered around losing. Huh. That is an interesting thought, yes. And Emmy says, it's going to be frustrating being an elf who's been around forever and knows everything and sees youngins repeating history. <laughs> fair. Definitely fair. Yes. Um, good. Good. Oh, Victoria says, it just occurred to me, it's interesting that Elrond descended from elves and man is more serious than the other elves in this book. Yes. Um, hmm. I guess we can't really talk about Elrond to that depth right now. It's already 10 after nine, you guys. I've got to keep you, uh, I've got to keep you moving forward because we have only covered one half of tonight's reading. We've actually covered the shorter chapter that we were going to discuss, but it was at least the more dense chapter. Now seems as good a time as any to push on to the beginning of chapter four and this description of the Misty Mountains. There were many paths that led up into those mountains and many passes over them. But most of the paths were cheats and deceptions and led nowhere or to bad ends. And most of the passes were infested by evil things and dreadful dangers. The dwarves and the hobbit, helped by the wise advice of Elrond and the knowledge and memory of Gandalf, took the right road to the right pass. Long days after they had climbed out of the valley and left the last homely house miles behind, they were still going up and up and up. It was a hard path and a dangerous path, a crooked way and a lonely and a long. Now they could look back over the lands they had left, laid out behind them far below, far, far away in the west, where things were blue and faint. Bilbo knew there lay his own country of safe and comfortable things, 
and his little hobbit hole. He shivered. This is one of those moments where the path that Bilbo takes will be laid out for us explicitly. We will get a beat of this later in the story when he again looks back to the West. But right now, he's looking back to the West from the flanks of the Misty Mountains. This is the first major breaking point in Bilbo's experience because so far, trolls aside, this has been somewhat familiar to Bilbo. He has traveled through the countryside. He has met with elves. He has encountered rest and comfort at Rivendell. He hasn't done those specific things before, perhaps, but they are broadly within the realm of his experience. But Bilbo, we can be fairly sure, has never climbed a mountain. Bilbo has never endured the Misty Mountains, these antagonistic peaks, which will return as a dangerous presence even in The Lord of the Rings. What I want to remember as we move through the Misty Mountains and out into the lands beyond, is that there is a thread connecting Bilbo back to the hill. And that thread will be carried with him until he makes it to the mountain. And I can say too, that one of the reasons that I pulled this is that it contains some of my favorite language that Tolkien ever gets to use. I think my favorite is the, uh, the second line there in the second paragraph. It was a hard path and a dangerous path a crooked way, and a lonely, and a long. It's beautifully written. It's just beautifully written. Let's uh, keep going because I am running so very late. Let's take a look at, okay, hey, let's do some controversy, shall we? Let's do a controversial passage here from The Hobbit, possibly, for me at least, the most controversial passage in the entire Hobbit. This is the passage that takes place as Bilbo is moving with the dwarves through the mountains. The storm has struck, and we get this account. Bilbo had never seen or imagined anything of the kind. They were high up in a narrow place, with a dreadful fall into a dim valley at one side of them. They were sheltering under a hanging rock for the night, and he lay beneath a blanket and shook from head to toe. When he peeped out in the lightning flashes, he saw that across the valley the stone giants were out and were hurling rocks at one another for a game and catching them and tossing them down into the, into the darkness where they smashed among the trees far below or splintered into little bits with a bang. Then came a wind and a rain, and the wind whipped the rain and the hail about in every direction so that an overhanging rock was no protection at all. Soon they were getting drenched, and their ponies were standing with their heads down and their tails between their legs, and some of them were whinnying with fright. They could hear the giants guffawing and shouting all over the mountainside. It is possible that you just read that passage along with me and thought, well, where is the controversy in that? <laughs> if you have seen the... Uh, the first of the Hobbit movies, the first of the Hobbit trilogy of movies, An Unexpected Party, then you will, I'm sure, remember this scene because it was pretty disastrous. Even in terms of adapting the scene literally, they went in a couple of directions that I don't think necessarily worked. We went for visual spectacle that basically challenged our understanding of how this world works in the first place. And I left the movie theater after watching these rock'em sock'em robots battle each other in the mountains of the Misty Mountains, in the, in the peaks, I should say, of the Misty Mountains to avoid unnecessary redundancy. I came out of the movie theater kind of enraged, kind of upset by this one particular scene. And the reason that I am upset, you guys, is that there are no stone giants in Middle Earth. There just aren't. 
There is no race of, of mountain folk living in the Misty Mountains. And we know this for sure from our privileged position because they are never mentioned again. This, to me, fairly obviously, is metaphor. This is metaphor in, uh, <laughs> we'll get to it. When we get to the, the Mines of Moria in, in The Lord of the Rings, we will, of course, address the question, do Balrogs have wings? The answer is no, Balrogs do not have wings. But authors can use metaphor. Authors can use simile in order to evoke a sense and a spirit of something that is not literally true. I have no doubt in my mind that there are no stone giants in Middle-earth, and that this is nothing but an extended metaphor. This, to me, reads very much like our discussion of the origins of golf back at the very beginning of the book. One of the things that myths do best is explain natural phenomena. Everything that Bilbo says here could be metaphorically true of the storm and the mountain. The absence, though, of any references to giants in the rest of Tolkien's entire legendarium. Oh, I stand corrected. There is one reference to giants in the rest of Tolkien's legendarium. It comes from the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. We get a reference to beings, quote, as tall as an elm tree or even taller. There is an interesting detail attached, though, to that mention of wandering gigantic creatures in the north. And that is that the Old English word for giant is ant. That is why ants are called ants. Ants does not mean tree people. It means giants. And I think there is a very strong possibility that at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, which will, no spoilers, I guess, feature ants, feature tree people, that Tolkien foreshadows that by mentioning a giant who happens to be as tall as an elm tree. I cannot imagine in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, as particularly as Gandalf is looking back on the events of The Hobbit, and he is cataloging the major powers and forces in this region in Middle-earth. We have a discussion about Smaug in, in The Fellowship, I believe, where he's talking about how much more disastrous things could be than they currently are. It strikes me as impossible that he could fail to mention. Oh, and also, there are giants who throw boulders around in the midst of storms up there in the Misty Mountains. Not to mention the fact that we are going to cross the Misty Mountains again, and we are going to see, even then, the hostility of the mountain made metaphor. For me, I, I am satisfied, at least. I'm, I'm fascinated to see what you guys make of this. It honestly never occurred to me until I came out of the movie adaptation that this was anything other than, I just realized I've had this slide up the entire time. I do apologize. Um, it didn't occur to me until I came out of the movie theater that anyone could have interpreted this as being literally true. I guess it can be true in the sense that Bilbo could have created it, could have, have rendered this story. It's possible even that Bilbo could have, have believed that this was true, but I have real trouble committing to the idea within the frame of, of Tolkien's secondary creation that the stone giants are true. Let's see here. Yes, Nicole says, so this passage is literally the Middle-earth version of God is bowling, the thunder explanation. That's exactly it. Yes, when you're sitting in the, in the lee of the mountains and the storm is raging above and you think, wow, the stone giants are really going at it tonight. Yeah. Yeah. This metaphor, says, says Sarah Thomas, this metaphor seems like a child's tale. Yeah, 
Well, it, it is. And that is one of the things that myths can do, of course, is, is to seek to explain the inexplicable world, the inexplicable world from the perspective of a child in terms that are accessible, in terms that are meaningful and, and substantial in that way. Andrea says, I agree. I only ever saw this as metaphor. Excellent. Good. I'm so glad I'm not alone. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Emmy's bringing up the ant wives. I know. Of all the stories left untold, and they are legion. Yes. 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 Robert says that, that Gandalf mentions talking some giants into blocking up the entrance at some point, but again, it's not at all clear what he is referring to there. We don't get any kind of perspective. There are, yes, this is fair. There are other references to giants, uh, but we don't know what that actually means. It's not clear that Gandalf is talking about a race of beings that, that live in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and he says, ah, now I'm going to question if everything is a metaphor. The reason that this stands out to me is, is actually the power of Tolkien's secondary creation. Because we don't question the fall of Gondolin, or we don't question the elves going into the West. We don't question any of, of the, the fantastical elements which are introduced to us in the course of the story because they seem to fit. They seem to be a part of a greater whole in a way that, for me at least, the stone giants don't. I'm, I'm unconvinced of their place within Tolkien's secondary creation. It challenges my investment of belief, and thus I choose to believe and, and find it fairly easy to believe that this is metaphor rather than the literal truth. Yeah, good. Okay, I really am running long. Let's push on to the next slide because we have a goblin song to talk about. The, the dwarves and Bilbo take shelter in a cave. They go to sleep. Bilbo is awoken late at night. Goblins slip out of a crack in the cave, seize the dwarves, seize Bilbo, uh, lose Gandalf, who, who triggers some kind of magical firecracker lightning effect and, and is left unscathed. And they drag the dwarves and Bilbo back down into the bowels of the earth. And as they do, they sing this song. Clap, snap, the black crack, grip, Grab, pinch, nab, and down, down to Goblin Town you go, my lad. Clash, crash, crush, smash, hammer and tongs, knocker and gongs, pound, pound for underground, ho, ho, my lad. Swish, smack, whip, crack, batter and beat, yammer and bleat, work, work, nor dare to shirk while goblins quaff and goblins laugh, round and round for underground below, my lad. One of the great advantages of looking at chapter three and chapter four so closely together is that we get to contrast the elf song and the goblin song. Simply observing that we could contrast these, simply observing that we ought to contrast these, I'm sure gets you a long way down the analytical road here. They are very different songs. And those differences, I think, really illuminate a great deal about the singers. If we go back to the elf song, we will see these these rolling and nebulous thoughts. One of the things that's most interesting about the Elf Song is that it is so difficult to pin down. The same cannot really be said of the Goblin Song. It is literal. It is so literal as to be blunt. It is, in, in broadest strokes at least, relatively monosyllabic. It doesn't do anything like the, the poetic complexity that we see from the Elvish Song earlier. Instead, what we get is immediacy. We get urgency. The first two lines, clap, snap, the black, crack, grip, grab, pinch, nab, 
We're looking at active present tense verbs. The goblins are singing of what they have just done, yes, but also what they are doing in the here and now. This is a unifying song. And, and, and even the, the sound of those words, those hard consonant sounds, those monosyllabic sounds, the, the rhythm of the piece sounds cruel and sharp-edged and immediate. And again, we can just look at the excess of exclamation points in the band, within the bounds of this poem. Yeah. Nikki says, I feel the rhythm is like drum beats deep in the earth. Yes. Yes. That, that drum beat rhythm, I think, is, is absolutely intentional. Excellent. Alexandra says, Tolkien is so good at language and sounds. It's, it's yeah, he sure is, isn't he? His, his ability to wield language to very specific effect is perhaps unrivaled in the English canon, certainly the English popular canon. I think that Tolkien, as a poet, is... is uh, okay, let's distill that a little further. Tolkien, as a narrative poet, is perhaps unparalleled in English. I can't think of anyone who does this. And this as much as I like the down, down to Goblin Down poem, this is far and away one of his more minor works. When he is really firing on all cylinders, there, there definitely isn't anyone quite like him in English. Yeah. Good. Oh, we're, we're getting some discussion here about, yes, goblins and orcs. Goblins and orcs are the same. They are used interchangeably throughout Tolkien's early work. Goblins is a fairy tale word. Orcs is an old English word. We see a tension there between his desire to, to create this old English uh, myth of foundation and creation, to create that mythical framework that allows for a sense of English identity, as we discussed last week, and his fairy tale impulse that leads us to goblins. Yes, but they are, particularly within the bounds of The Hobbit, identical. They are the same race. Yeah, good. Good question. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm not going to take any more time to highlight that right now because I think we need to push a little further forward and look at the actual description that we get of goblins. Now, goblins are cruel, wicked, and bad-hearted. They make no beautiful things, but they make many clever ones. They can tunnel and mine as well as any but the most skilled dwarves when they take the trouble, though they are usually untidy and dirty. Hammers, axes, swords, daggers, pickaxes, tongs, and also instruments of torture they make very well, or get other people to make to their design, prisoners and slaves that have to work till they die for want of air and light. It is not unlikely that they invented some of the machines that have since troubled the world, especially the ingenious devices for killing large numbers of people at once, for wheels and engines and explosions always delighted them, and also not working with their own hands more than they could help. But in those days and those wild parts, they had not advanced, as it is called, so far. They did not hate dwarves especially, no more than they hated everybody and everything, and particularly the orderly and prosperous. In some parts, wicked dwarves had even made alliances with them. But they had a special grudge against Thorin's people because of the war which you have heard mentioned, but which does not come into this tale. And anyway, goblins don't care who they catch, as long as it, as long as it is done smart and secret and the prisoners are not able to defend themselves. When we... 
discussed right back in our first reading the three narrative voices that we will track through the pages of The Hobbit, I was already thinking ahead to this description because this is one of the most Tolkien passages that we will read in the entire book. This is clearly not in Bilbo's voice. Bilbo is not talking about the Industrial Revolution. He is not talking about industrialization. He is not talking about the mechanization of war, the industrialization of war. He is not talking about what we might today think of as weapons of mass destruction. He is not thinking about the experiences that Tolkien himself had in the trenches of the First World War. But Tolkien is. This is where we break from Bilbo's narrative and superimpose that framing narrative, the idea that Bilbo's core story was passed down to Tolkien and he himself reframed it and published it. This is not Bilbo's voice. This is Tolkien's voice. And it's also enormously powerful. It's enormously compelling and presumptive too of the actual existence of goblins. Just as we saw dwarves and elves rendered in the present tense earlier in tonight's reading, here we see goblins not only rendered in the present tense, or almost rendered in the present tense, but also directly held responsible for the modern mechanization of war. That's a powerful thing. And we can look very carefully here and see those qualities which lead to their evilness, which lead to that, that goblin spirit, that goblin malevolence. Goblins are cruel, wicked, and bad-hearted. They make no beautiful things, but they make many clever ones. That distinction, of course, between beautiful and clever, not quite as simple as we might think it to be. This is not about uh, the prom queen versus the nerd. It's not that kind of beautiful, nor yet that kind of clever. An intricate contraption may be beautiful. But a clever contraption is one that is put to specific purpose. Its existence is not sufficient. It is not defined by its, its beauty, by its form. It is defined only by its function. They can tunnel as mine as well as any but the most skilled dwarves when they take the trouble that they are also untidy and dirty. So we see an unloveliness here, a lack of discipline, a lack of focus, a lack, we might speculate, of community. And we see, of course, that most cardinal of sins. The goblins do the one thing that, that is absolutely beyond the moral horizon in Tolkien's world. They exploit people. They treat others as though they are things, as though they are tools and doing that is the surest guarantee that you are a bad guy in Middle-earth. Yeah. Good. Dry Heaving Llama says, I hate the war pigs as much as anyone, but I feel this passage is a bit heavy-handed myself. Th that's certainly, I think, fair criticism, though I think in part it would have been less heavy-handed when The Hobbit was published. It would have been more immediate. And we must remember that that... Tolkien in particular, too, <laughs> I keep falling into this trap, Tolkien's voice within the frame of this novel is specifically talking to children. So we have to remember that while this is a little didactic, while this is um, more emphatic and heavy-handed and less nuanced than we might expect, it is intended to drive home the point. And that's not just a point, hmm. We must understand this relationship to be, to be reciprocal, that we are not invoking fairy tale monsters, goblins, in order to make 
the, the mechanization and industrialization of war seem monstrous. That would have been unnecessary in the early years of the 20th century. We're also drawing on the imagery of the mechanization of war to make the goblins seem more monstrous. Both are made worse by this comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, that just scrolled off here. <laughs> the YouTube chat is jumping tonight, you guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, Jordan says, or maybe given that we're all human and we all have the human hate for hate, would the goblins be the physical manifestation of the evil of war? Put a pin in that. We will circle back around to that when we get to Isengard and the Lord of the Rings. Yes, because I think that that when we're dealing with the the weaponization and the mobilization of goblins, of orcs, um, we're going to explore that theme even more fully. But yes, we might even think of goblin culture here beneath the Misty Mountains as a kind of proto-Isengard. We see the the march toward progress, the march toward a dehumanized future emphasized here in exactly the same way as we will later see in, in Isengard. Good. Good. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Dylan says, industrialization is bad, independent of goblins in the works of Tolkien. Yeah. Goblins are bad because they industrialize. Industrializ industrialization is not bad because goblins do it. They are, they are evil and corrupt because they are reflective of what Tolkien saw as one of the greater uh, foolish arrogance you know, one of the greater mistakes made by contemporary society to Tolkien's eyes was the the unheeded rush toward industrialization. He wasn't against necessarily, you know, a maintained kind of development. But yes, progress for progress sake, that's pretty harmful as far as Tolkien's concerned. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Oh, Nikki is asking, how were the elves tortured enough to completely change physically, genetically, and in complete essence? Nikki is referencing the fact that uh, that the orcs, that the goblins are elves. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not. They are, but within the pages of The Hobbit, they're not. Tolkien never really satisfactorily kind of codified uh, our understanding of, of what the orcs were and where they came from. There are vague and contradictory references throughout his expanded uh, his expanded work. But yes, within the bounds of The Hobbit, certainly. Um, and then we'll draw a distinction between... Hmm, we'll draw a distinction between orcs and, and Urukai and, and other kind of constructed, uh, constructed forces of evil when we get to The Lord of the Rings. But right now, we may as well consider goblins an entirely different species and, and not worry too much about that because it was never really... Uh, understood or, or codified properly, I would say. I'm, I'm hesitant to say that, but but of course, Tolkien left us with more stories untold than told. He accomplished such a, a fascinating and immense and complex and challenging and, and illuminative body of work, but ultimately left more undone than done. Yeah. Good, good. Let me see here. I've just realized that my uh, my Discord chat is not <laughs> my Discord chat is not scrolling here automatically. And you guys, I have missed a lot of things in the Discord chat. I do apologize for that. Um, yes, good. Oh, we're talking a little about the quality of the songs. Kate says the Must Aware or Break of Day one was the best so far. The rest, Matt, at best. 
I would agree certainly that that uh, the the Misty Mountain song is is far and away the best that we've seen so far. Though it can't hold a candle to the the best poetry that we'll get later. Yes. And Lorna Jane quotes, yes, they shaped and wrought the light they caught to hide in gems on hilt of sword. Pretty good. Pretty good. Yes. Oh, and they're chiding me for, for forgetting to remove my slides. That was the worst one. I know. I left that one up for forever. I do apologize. Okay. Um, yes, and we're talking in the YouTube chat about a forthcoming Prisoner of Azkaban uh, series. Yes. Um, Okay, I do have one more slide that I want to alight on, but I guess we can talk about this now. I'm not going to get to Azkaban for a few more weeks, but when I do, I'm thinking that I'm going to take more time to do Azkaban than I have with the previous Harry Potter sessions, because I think that shorter sessions, shorter readings are easier to keep up with. So what we may do is take, rather than taking eight or nine weeks to do Azkaban, we might take 14 or 15 weeks to do Azkaban and keep the readings shorter and hopefully keep the seminar sessions shorter. Maybe we can do these in and out in an hour, by which of course I mean 90 minutes, by which of course I mean two hours. But at least if I aim for an hour, we won't run that much longer than two. How does that sound? That sounds pretty good, right? Okay, let's uh, conclude then with our final slide and the intervention of Gandalf to save the dwarves from the goblins. Then Gandalf lit up his wand. Of course it was Gandalf, but just then they were too busy to ask how he got there. He took out his sword again, and again it flashed in the dark by itself. It burned with a rage that made it gleam if goblins were about. Now it was bright as Excuse me, it was bright as blue flame for delight in the killing of the great lord of the cave. It made no trouble whatever of cutting down the goblin chains and setting all the prisoners free as quickly as possible. This sword's name was Glamdring, the Foe Hammer, if you remember. The goblins just called it Beater and hated it worse than Biter, if possible. Orchrist, too, had been saved, for Gandalf had brought it along as well, snatching it from one of the terrified guards. Gandalf thought of most things, and though he could not do everything... He could do a great deal for his friends in a tight corner. This is right after the uh, this is right after the beat where Gandalf has uh, intervened and killed at right the great goblin. He escapes from kidnap in the cave by the use of magical lightning. Then he returns, magically extinguishes all the lights in the cave. But it's crucial to note he kills the great goblin with the sword, not with magic because there are still, even at the heart of this story, fairy tale conventions that we must observe. Let's conclude then by talking a little about Gandalf's role so far in the story, because this is the second time that he has intervened and directly saved the dwarves and Bilbo from, at the very least, discomfort, if not outright death. Um, he saved them with the trolls through cleverness and guile. He saved them here through magic and swordplay. But once again, he has come in from beyond the border of the story, he has descended upon the story like a deus ex machina, like a, an act of eucatastrophe, to save the dwarves. And there was a great discussion right after Gandalf saved the dwarves from the trolls about whether or not that intercession removed the dwarves' agency, whether it made us less interested in the dwarves because it demonstrated a lack of capability from those characters who are supposed to be our heroes. And I'm talking about the dwarves here in the broadest sense because I'm also including Bilbo in their number. And I would argue, I think, that that is the point. I would argue that we are not supposed to have any faith in the dwarves right now. We are not supposed to believe that the dwarves are capable of handling this quest, this endeavor, 
that without the assistance of Gandalf, they would be in great trouble, that they would be very unlikely to survive. And the reason that I think we're doing that is that we're effectively here building a pattern through the Misty Mountains, through the, the tame lands to the west of the Misty Mountains and through the mountains themselves, because ultimately, minor spoilers, Gandalf is going to leave the party. He is going to be absent for the last act of the book. And creating that tension, building that expectation of Gandalfian intercession, building that expectation that, well, it's okay because no matter how bad things get, the wizard will show up. Well, the wizard isn't going to show up. And ultimately, the dwarves and Bilbo specifically will have to take care of themselves. They will have to save their own lives, save their own hope, and, and preserve any, any future hope for the quest. That, I think, is purposeful. But that is not to say that it is particularly well done. I do think that the repetition of Gandalfian intercession, which if I hadn't already titled this week's session, would definitely be the title of this week's session. I think the repetition of Gandalfian intercession so soon after the trolls is perhaps a beat too much. But all the same, I think it works well enough. And certainly the desperate fight, because we have to remember, of course, that Gandalf has not saved them. He has bought them some time but they are about to be recaptured and Bilbo is about to be lost at the very end of the chapter. He is about to, to slip into darkness. And well, then let me call up the last slide here and show you next week. Next week at 9 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, February the 9th, 2017, we are going to be looking at the fifth chapter of The Hobbit, Riddles in the Dark. This is meaningfully, thematically, narratively, the heart of the book. And while I described this week's reading as the beginning of our first major turning point, Riddles in the Dark is our turning point. This is the transition effectively from the first act to the second of this story. This is where Bilbo is transformed in a really interesting and powerful and sophisticated fashion. It is arguably, I would say, the standout chapter of The Hobbit. We are going to have an absolute ton to discuss. I can pretty much guarantee we're going to run long next week. You guys, if we get out of that in less than two hours, I'm going to be very surprised. There is so much to discuss. I cannot wait to discuss it all with you. I have kept you too long this week. Thank you so much for your company. Thank you so much for your time. It has been, of course, a privilege to discuss this with you, and it will be a privilege in the days and weeks ahead. As I said, you can use the hashtag back again. You can contact me directly, Alistair at storywonk.com, or you can head on over to the Storywonk forum, forum.storywonk.com. Getting to do this kind of, of deep dive textual analysis, getting to, to talk about these stories in this way is an enormous privilege. I'm so grateful to get to do it. If you would like to support me, if you would like to do more of this, if you would like to look at your favorite book, head on over to patreon.com slash storywonk. If you pledge your support to Patreon, to the Storywonk Patreon, I should say, at the $20 level, then you get to pick a subject for a Patreon-exclusive show patreon.com slash storywonk. I'll discuss pretty much anything. Guys, thank you all so much for joining me. It has been a pleasure. I will talk to you all again very soon. The podcast will be available in the next few hours. Until then, take care.